Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, October 12, 2010. At least it's that day in California. We're sure glad that you've joined us. Our guest tonight is Sylvia Martinez. Hi, Sylvia. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm great. I really appreciate you coming on. You know you have a fan club, right? Okay. <laughs> it was really fun to watch the tweets today about your event tonight. I'm going to quote from one. Uh, Thought-provoking and not the status quo. Wow. I need to make to like a movie to. poster. All the good quotes. Anyway, I'm in that fan club, and it's sure good to have you here. The Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, now Blackboard Collaborate. The project I work on is called Learn Central. It's a social network for educators with Illuminate baked in. It is all free. We hope you'll come and use it and take advantage of the, the uh, capabilities there. We're also sponsored this month by the Redo program from Bing and Microsoft. They're kind enough to help my book budget, and uh, they're sponsors for the month of October. So we're appreciative of that. Coming up in November, we do have our Global Education Conference. Uh, if you've submitted a presentation you haven't heard back, I am the bottleneck. Although I'm not vetting all those presentations, they are going to the regional chair people. So, um, but they've, a lot of them have gotten back to me, and it's my task tomorrow to start getting those letters out. But it's a highly inclusive program. We really want as many people as possible to have an opportunity to present. It is free over five days. Uh, it should just be a blast. So please go to globaleducationconference.com. Coming up on the future of education tomorrow, Roger Shank talks to us. Uh, and then on Thursday, our good friend Kathleen Cushman uh, has a student panel on homework. This, this promises to be really delightful. Next week, Nancy White on networks and communities, Jennifer Fox on your child strengths, the week after that, Jim Burke. Then Diane Ravitch is coming on. You can look at the rest of the schedule there. New on that list are Will Richardson, uh, Deborah Meyer, and Alfie Cohn. So very much fun. The student panel is Thursday two nights from now, at the same time. And I don't know if you know anybody knows much about Kathleen, but she's just delightful. And uh, her message on homework, I think, will resonate with a lot of people. I'm just going to have students talk about that. And everything she does involves students. As we're also going to hear from Sylvia tonight. If you've missed the futureofeducation.com session, we have them all recorded. Uh, last week, I talked to uh, Jody Martino and Denise Walk on their book, The Personalized High School. I have to tell you, I drank the Kool-Aid. I really like this book. I really like the work they've done. I'm, we're going to do a series of shows on uh, some of the activities that are around these personalized schools, including advisories, uh, personal learning plans, and exhibitions. If those words don't mean anything to you, I apologize. But uh, it's really fascinating work on building a culture of uh, a, a culture of education within schools. Uh, we also had our three-hour Elevate the Dialogue panel. Uh, that was a lot of fun, N not without controversy. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. But anyway, really a good session. And hopefully a chance that we're going to start a series with Edutopia and Microsoft uh, to continue trying to elevate the dialogue on education. And, and Sylvia, I'm sure we're going to dive into that a little tonight. So if this is your first time in Illuminate, welcome. This is a participatory participative environment. And we hope that you'll, um, you'll participate by putting things in the chat. You can also use the small emoticons that are at the bottom of the participant window. They see a smiling face, a clapping hand, a confused look, or a thumbs down. Next to them is a, a larger button with a hand and a green up arrow. That's to raise your hand and let us know you want to ask a question. Please do. Before you raise your hand, go up to Tools Audio and run the audio setup wizard to make sure your microphone is working. You can also place questions just in the chat. I find it's much easier to follow the chat if I go up to View Layouts and I select the Wide Layout. So that's View Layouts and select the Wide Layout to, to view the chat a little bit easier. Now we're going to give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. Look for the wand with the red star at the end to the left of the map. Click on that and then click on the map. And you can also uh, do a shout out in the chat, letting us know 
where you're listening from and the, maybe the time and the temperature looks like Brazil. Oi, Brazil. Looks like India, Australia. Your fan club is uh, geographically diverse. Exotic Northern Virginia, Canada. Anyway, wherever you are listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we sure appreciate your participating. Oh, China. What did I say? India. I didn't mean India. I meant China. There's China. Sylvia, so thanks so much for coming on tonight. Really fun. I feel like I'm talking to an old friend. Well, thanks. That's nice. I feel the same way. A friend who I've been friends with for a while, not an old friend. <laughs> right. Now that, now that we're this age, we have to make that clear. So I know we talked about uh, several topics that we could touch on tonight. I wondered if we might start by having you just give a little bit of background about yourself again and uh, helping people to understand um, where you've come from and, and what you do at Generation Yes. Um, okay. Uh, I'm president of Generation Yes, and this is an organization that um, works with schools, mostly in the United States, but in other countries as well. And we have a number of programs, curriculum and online tools that help schools look at students in a new way. Um, some of the things that we do is we have curriculum for students doing tech support. We have online tools that help students work with teachers, so students teaching teachers about technology. It's, it's a combination of technology learning and service learning that really helps put students at the center of the, the learning experience with technology. That results in a lot of benefits. Kids are the digital generation. The teachers need the help. It's a great thing that schools can do um, that really walks the talk of student empowerment and really you know, puts students in the driver's seat with something that they feel very passionate about and that teachers really need help with. So um, it's also something that schools do naturally. I mean, everybody says, oh, sure, I have kids help out. But when you think about it in a more um, systemic way, it really can provide additional benefits. Um, and yes, Andy, the ID departments need the help too. Um, there's sometimes there's a divide between what the IT departments want, you know, have an idea about doing and what the teachers have an idea about doing. And students can help bridge that in a lot of schools. So we work with schools, a lot of a lot of districts, um, even some state departments. Um, to bring these ideas to real schools, real teachers, and hopefully make more opportunities available for students. So do you find that there is um, sort of extended influence from these programs toward having students participate in other ways, or does it end up being kind of isolated to tech? Um, well, every school is very different. There are some schools that focus completely on having students do tech support. Um, those, you know, I, I wouldn't, it, it happens a lot. The longer schools do this, the more they see students contributing, the more you can identify students as real resources. You can, you know, we do have students, you know, serving on tech committees, contributing to plans. I was talking to a tech director today who said that, He's been trying to get an adult, you know, a committee of adults who are working on their, their new tech plan for like six months and to, to get it on Google Docs so that everyone could edit it. He finally just gave it to a group of his Gen Yes kids and they had it on Google Docs in an afternoon. He didn't have to teach the kids the Google Docs. He didn't have to do anything. And, you know, that's just one step. So kids, you know, if they're given responsibility, and their help to step up and take responsibility could really be great, you know, really help out, out a lot. Um, we have other, other schools that focus solely on students helping teachers. They're not fixing broken stuff. They're just working one-on-one -on -one with teachers on projects. We have other schools doing community service, helping nonprofits, teaching uh, seniors how to get email. 
Um, kids are an amazing resource. They love to be asked to help, and it's and it's great for everybody. So, for you personally, what have been kind of the lessons about student involvement in their education? Are there broader lessons here? Oh, I, I think you know. First of all, this is like my third career. Fourth, if you count, you know, being a mom and a parent, and and you know, the head career. Um, I started out as an, as an electrical engineer working in aerospace. Um, and then I jumped to working with educational software. I worked for Davidson. I'm sure some of you remember Math Blaster. It's still out there. People love Math Blaster. Um, I worked there for about seven years. I was an executive producer. Got involved with game design. I moved on to other companies where we did actual video game and console design. Um, those kinds of experiences are intense learning experiences in themselves. Um, you know, schools try and teach students how to be in the real world, but the learning experiences that you have as an engineer, as a game designer, aren't very much like school. So when I came to Generation Yes, part of that was sort of in me, this sort of, you know, conflict between the way school is and the way real life is. Um, and Generation Yes, I feel, is the way that I'm trying to bring those two things together, to help make school more collaborative, more like real life, to help see, people see technology not as a way to like do stuff to kids, but as a way to open up all kinds of opportunities to kids. Um, you know, some of the most amazing mathematicians I've ever met were programmers in the game industry, and many, many of them had either left school or been told they were bad at math, or you know they just didn't see things the way that the math class saw them. Um, you know, and so what I try and do with Generation Yes is help schools find ways to really include students to do the things that the, that the students find interesting and the students find really engaging, and tie that to academic purposes and tie that to the wisdom of adults. You know, it's not like these kids are just so smart and they're running wild, but that together adults and kids can really form powerful teams and, and produce amazing things. Are there any common elements to the schools where you feel like they're being really successful in creating that kind of an engaged learning environment that, that you can describe? I mean, do you see similarities? Is it a philosophical um, mandate or strongly held position? Is it a certain kind of a culture of learning? What what helps schools to get to that place? Uh, it's, it's definitely philosophical. Um, you know, I think things that fit with this are uh, uh, project-based learning, um, student-centered, student ownership. You know, we have a lot of one-to-one -one schools working with us because, you know, one-to-one -one is kind of the concrete embodiment of putting power into student hands. So, you know, schools that are willing to try new things, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, one of the things we were going to talk about today is the myths of technology integration. And there's a lot of status quo in how you do professional development. So schools that are willing to question their own practices and say, you know, are we doing, or is what we're doing really working? You know, do we know it's working? Can we show it's working? And even if it's working, what could we do that's better? So I think this constant challenging yourself is, is a philosophy and being open to learning yourself as an institution, as an individual. I think all of the schools we work with have that sort of, how can we do it better tomorrow? What's be what can be better tomorrow than, than what we did today? I think Sandy puts in a question there, are there common elements where you've seen this fail? What if we sort of springboard on that and say, are, are there larger policy lessons that you, you might draw from where you've seen success that would help us to maybe elevate the, that reform discussion a little? Um, you know, re the reform discussion is being held at so many different levels. It, you know, I. When, when I go to a school and I work with a school and there are things that I see in that school that, you know, are problematic, sometimes that doesn't always inform like a national level education reform discussion. 
um, I think one of the problems is everyone's bringing this sort of very personal um, you know perspective and since everyone's been to school, everyone has a personal perspective you know to this national education reform discussion. Um, what I know is with with some schools, I see a lot of churning. I see not just you know funding churning but reorganization. I can't tell you the number of times I talk to someone and they will, well, you know, we're really on this, but first we're going to reorganize and then we're going to write a plan. And it's like, okay, call me in five years. You know, the kids are growing up. The kids are out of there in a year. Um, classroom, you know, school funding is also a problem. If, if you want to change a program that has a student component, you have to start a year in advance. So the budget has to be there like now. If the budget's not there now, the student programming isn't going to be scheduled in time for you know January, February, March scheduling, and then it won't happen next September. So it's hard to focus on something that's so far away that you don't know if you're going to have the budget for. Um, you know, so this kind of constant churning and the funding getting pulled from this and that, that's what I see on a very ground level as being um, you know, a, a problem. Another thing is personnel changeover. There's a real attitude when you get a new superintendent or a new, uh, or a new principal, you often hear, well, out with the old, I'm bringing in my stuff. And, you know, everyone just kind of shrugs and says, oh, well. You know, it, it's, that, that's a real problem. Um, you know, another issue is, is that, um, you know, funding just gets jerked around. Um, you can't count on the budget for something next year. So you can't count on the budget, you can't plan for it. If you can't plan for it, it doesn't happen. So I want to separate some of the thoughts I've been having and be sure I'm not putting words into your mouth, but I'm wondering if there's a connection here. If you see certain characteristics of schools that are open to, to this kind of participation by the students, and it is cultural, does that in some ways tell us that this really isn't about national reform, but it's more about helping to create that culture locally? Well, that's, I mean, to me, that's one of the biggest issues that we're talking about. This idea that you can top down, tell schools what to do, and yet, you know, schools are, are the most, you know, local, community-driven thing there is. Every kid is different. Every classroom is different. Every teacher is different. And having these top-down mandates come down is just another part of the churning. You know, it's just like the superintendent's boss leaves and the superintendent's boss's boss is changing and all the rules keep changing. And down at the bottom of the classroom level, you, you know, you just watch all this stuff go by and there's no ability to really keep things moving forward. Um, you know, I, I think that's one of the biggest contradictions about the current conversation about reform. You know, the things they talk about reforming remove professionalism and remove autonomy for the classroom, and that's exactly what, what needs to be added back to the classroom. T for teachers to be professionals, they have to be autonomous. For students to be independent learners, they have to be autonomous. You can't have autonomous students without having autonomous teachers. It just doesn't work. And this contradiction, I don't know how we're going to solve it. I really don't. So those, those who've been listening to the interview series are going to be tired of hearing me say this, but I've been kind of intrigued by the model of the total quality management movement, Sylvia, because mm -hmm. it empowered, it basically said you have to give the resources to the person closest to the problem, you have to teach them how to look for you know, the actual causes of issues, and then you empower them to solve them. And, and I've been saying that for a couple months now that I'm intrigued by this connection. And this week, one of my great life heroes is a man named W. Edwards Deming, who helped uh, mm -hmm. pull Japan out of post-World War II um, circumstances to build a you know great manufacturing base. And somehow I came across a quote this week from him where he talks very specifically about just how counterproductive it is to blame the worker for the, the faults of the output. And I thought, well, mm -hmm. this is so interesting because we really are right now at a point where we are blaming the teachers. And it's very easy to do so, I think. But again, I think it misses the point of the schools that, are, that appear to be very successful really helping a broad range of students tend to have built a culture rather than having criticized individual teachers. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think part part of this is a problem with schools um, looking for solutions. And it's not just schools. I shouldn't say just schools. We all look for silver bullets. We always look for magic wands. We hope that there's something out there that's just going to work overnight. And I think a lot of times we give power away to, um, you know, to districts, to vendors who say, okay, um, autonomy works. We're going to give you an autonomy system. And it's like, great. You know, and so people run off and buy these things that are just completely contradictory. You can't have people solving your, your problems for you. You know, um, one of my heroes, you talk about Deming, um, is a guy who did a lot of work in assessment for, for, for workers. Um, you know, he, he said that assessment is Tom DeMarco, I forgot, I almost forgot his name. Tom DeMarco said that assessment is worthless if it doesn't, if it doesn't help first and fo foremost the person who's being assessed. You know, and think about that in terms of all this standardized testing stuff. What does it do for a student? If, if we can't answer that basic question, we're not doing anybody any good. So, you know, I, I think there's um, people, you know, I know educators hate hearing how business has all solutions, but I think there are people in business like Deming and DeMarco who have really, really good solutions that could be applied to schools in some, um, you know, in some fashion. Because everything certainly doesn't apply. Well, and certainly I think there's a difference between trying to import business methodologies into schools versus saying there are some people who had real insight into human nature and how things get done. And there may not be a direct transfer, but we can learn from that. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Um, you know, and, and as a business, institutions are different than businesses too. You know, businesses have completely different rules and, and goals and, you know, things they value than institutions do. The school was set up for the, for the benefit of the community, not to make a profit, not to be efficient, but to benefit the community, you know, and for the kids inside, for every, and for, for our civilization to move forward. Um, you know, we can't forget that. That's not, that's that's the most important thing we should be thinking of. Not trying to make things more efficient. Um, you know, I I think we, but I think some of this is a little bit of um, self doubt among educators that we really can fix these problems ourselves. Um, and believe me, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy to sit down and look at a child and look at the work they're doing. It takes time. It's much easier to have them bubble in a Scantron and slip it through machines. But it's, it's, it's worthless. So which is the bigger waste of time? You know, the thing that takes more time and works or the thing that is easy to do and doesn't work? Um, but <laughs> there's a lot of easy and doesn't work solutions out there. So someone asked if you would share the START program and the student leadership programs that are working and maybe if you want to talk just about success stories in general, that would be a valuable thing. Um, yeah, and I think you know, pulling it back to the sort of you know, what are the myths of technology integration? Um, you know, one of the one of the things we hear all the time about why technology isn't really being used as well, as good as it could be in schools is that there's not enough PD. And I think you know, going back to what I said before about questioning these assumptions. Um, if something's not working, doing more of it won't do you any good at all. So I think you know schools that are who are successful really do question whether what they're doing works or not. Um, and one of the th one of the myths about this about PD is that it has to happen outside of the classroom. Whereas I think if you look at any of the research about like professional development or um, you know community of practice, if any kind of training or, or you know, work that you do on your, on your own practice, the closer it is to the place of actual practice, the more beneficial it is. And I think people don't think of the classroom as a community enough. Um, the teacher is almost always there with the students by themselves, where they're the only adult and the only professional in the room. Um, 
looking at that classroom as a community of practice can give you some real insight about what kids can do as you know, participants in this community of practice. What can they contribute to the learning environment? What are we asking them to do? How do we ask them to step up instead of one person being the source of all knowledge and the kids being you know, the receptacles? How can we turn that arrow around and go both ways? So part of what we do in schools is ask them to look at professional development not just as something that happens outside of the classroom when the teachers go away. Um, I think there are some, some unintentional messages that happen with PD outside of the classroom. And, you know, completely unintentional. But the message is often that well, teachers come out here and you can learn this tool and you won't have to be afraid of making any mistakes in front of those students. Well, there's a lot of messages there that making mistakes is bad, that, that risking in front of students is bad, that showing students your process is bad, um, that you have to be some amazing magic teacher before you can even like set foot in the classroom and share these tools with kids. Um, you know, I think a lot of teachers find that hidden message fairly convincing, that if they don't figure it all out ahead of time, they shouldn't really bring the tool into the classroom. And I think that misses a huge opportunity. And that's what we work on with, with these student leaders in the school. What can teachers share about the process of bringing technology into the school? Um, you know, and I, it's not only the schools I work with. I hear from schools all over the world. Um, you know, people send me blogs and send me videos and send me posts about, you know, kids just being fabulous at figuring this stuff out and teaching others. Well, I'm not saying teachers don't have to learn it, but why are we waiting? You know, are we going to let all this time go by trying to convince the teachers that they should learn technology and then hope that they turn around and teach it to students? I just don't think we can count on that pipeline anymore. You know, when you look at it just in numbers, teachers and staff are about 8% of the population on any campus. Students are about 92%. So just in terms of numbers, we really got to think of this as a 100% solution. What can we do 100% that makes technology integration happen at the school? So there's so much chat I can't follow it all. And listen to everything you say at the same time. So if really you said something in the chat that needs a response, I know. I apologize. Please post it again, and we'll try and make sure we ask that question. We will shift to Q&A in about 10 or 15 minutes. So also feel free to hold that question for that moment. Sylvia, do you want to talk about digital citizenship at all? Um, well, I think you know it, it all ties in together. I, I don't think, you know, if you just even look at the word citizenship, it means being a member of community. It means there's a two-way street. You get something, you give something. Um, if digital citizenship is just about teaching kids rules, that's not citizenship. That's like a digital dictatorship. We're just, you know, sort of download again. We're downloading stuff to kids. Um, being a citizen means stepping up and taking responsibility. So, what are you going to give kids responsibility for? If they're not able to use the technology, how are they going to become responsible? This is, you know, Nancy Willard, whose work I respect highly, says it's like teaching kids to swim without a swimming pool. You know, we've all heard the, um, you know, the saying, if we taught baseball like we taught, you know, things in school, by the 12th grade you would have like read all the rules and, and had quizzes on all the, you know, the, the batting positions and the, you know, the outfield and would have never stepped onto a baseball diamond. So we have to figure out how to keep the kids safe, but um, you know, we can't just say that we're teaching digital citizenship to kids. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense at all to me. You know, and like Sandy says, here Sandy is like allowing personal devices to use on the so on, in the classroom. Um, you know, this is coming. It's not like we have a, a decision about this. You know, Sandy and other people are are well aware that five years from now, we can't even have this conversation. We can't say we can, we'll never be able to stop this from happening. We cannot shut the, the doors of the classroom to the technology devices and the connectivity that's coming. 
there's we're putting our heads in the sand if we think this is going to just go away. Sorry, my audio got delayed there a bit, and I didn't mean to interrupt you earlier. Hey, I don't want to uh, go too far afield, but there was a question I wanted to ask you tonight before we got to the Q&A. I think you and I have talked before about you know, a concern that um, there's a little bit of a gender divide when it comes to conference speaking and representing the community. Do you have any thoughts about that tonight that, that might lead us to a productive discussion? Um, gosh. Uh, there's, so, there's so many things to talk about. Um, you you did really take a big left turn there, didn't you? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there's the gender divide as well as between the classroom and and school administrators. The higher up you go in in school leadership, the fewer women you see. Even though, you know, the the teaching staff is overwhelmingly female. Um, I think there are some kind of practical logistical familial issues that make it more riskier for a woman going out on the road. Women tend to be the primary caretakers, you know, things like that. If you're trying to speak at conferences, it means you're leaving something behind. Um, and while gender roles have definitely changed in the last 30 years, the woman's still the primary caretaker. Um, there's, there's a whole, you know, body of work that say that people don't take things women say as seriously as, they, as the things that men say. Um, you know, it's it's there's probably another master's thesis in there somewhere. Uh, on the other hand, I think there are an incredible number of strong women who are making a difference, are out there speaking in their own communities, out you know in conferences. I think we have to encourage it. I think we have to tell women that their voices are wanted and needed, maybe more explicitly than men. Um, you know, Jeff, Jeff, you brought up a whole other one. You go to conferences and it's, it's very white. You know, what's keeping people, you know, women of color, men of color from coming to educational technology conferences? I don't know. Are there, I'm interested if the audience has any thoughts on this as well. And I think it came up for you and me in the context of who gets asked to keynote and sort of the conversation went from there. Are, uh, let's ask the community here, are there things that we could be doing that would make a difference here or to help promote uh, voices that for some reason aren't necessarily getting uh, the attention that they could? Feel free to put something in the chat or if you're feeling really strongly you can raise your hand. Sylvia, are there any other sort of hot button issues for you right now? What, what what things are you really thinking about actively? Oh gosh, well you know the whole waiting for Superman is uh, is uh, on the top of everybody's mind. I you know we probably already talked about that. Um, you know you never want to feel like there's nothing that you can do and nothing that can be changed. Um, you know, I think people just want to keep working, working the way we are. I think the other thing that I I always think about is um, because of my engineering background, I think about programming, and how much I how important programming, learning programming was for me, as you know, that really propelled me forward as in my academic life and and my understanding of the world and my you know, grasp of of everything, math and science and just the way the world works. And, you know, there's a number of things where engineering and programming are trying to sneak their way into the curriculum and I'm um, constantly looking at those efforts and, and, you know, trying to figure out where I can help. So I'm trying to remember the first name of the, I've interviewed him, his last name is Rushkoff. What's his first name? Um, and I think he's just written a book about the importance of learning programming. Douglas, Douglas Rushkoff. Yeah. Has anybody uh, seen yeah. anything about that or do anything about it, Sylvia? I haven't read his book. Um, I just, you know, 
for me, it was just a, a real intellectual experience, a really powerful experience that, you know, I really hadn't had before, Some, something that I really grasped. Um, as somebody said, how, do, how was I introduced to programming? I actually went to a, uh, a National Science Foundation funded summer program where kids had to apply and it was, I think, when I was between 11th and 12th grade and computers were, you know, behind big walls and we had to learn punch cards and everything. And we went to live on a, on a college campus for six weeks. And, um, you know, I was the first one in my family who, who really went to college. And it was a, a very, in, you know, really, really interesting experience. And the programming part was the part that just took off for me. And, you know, plus other things, realizing that the way that the high school classes were not the way they taught them in, in college. I mean, there wasn't this math, science, history. I mean, there were like 20,000 different kinds of math and 20,000 different kinds of physics. And there was, you know, theoretical and applied. And, and it, was, it was such an eye-opener, um, you know. And that sort of stuck with me. And just being able to have so many choices I thought was really amazing. And, you know, I think the NSF does some really good work in opening up opportunities for kids to see that there's, you know, a, a whole range of, of possibilities for college and careers. Good. Well, let's uh, kind of ease ourselves into um, a Q&A here with Sylvia. Uh, there, there, you've probably asked some questions in the chat that I haven't seen. So if you did ask a question in the chat and, and I missed it, please feel free to post it again. Uh, you can also use the larger hand with the green up arrow. That's the icon at the bottom of your participant window to raise your hand and we'll give you the microphone to let you ask Sylvia a question out loud. Uh, if you haven't used the mic before in Illuminate, do go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard. So there's a discussion about Scratch taking place in the chat, Sylvia. Are you Scratch mm -hmm. familiar? Yes. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Not an expert, but definitely familiar. Would um, you be willing to give a short you know, description? Go ahead. Uh, Scratch is a, is a programming language for kids. It's, it's a graphic um, and you know fairly easy to learn. Um, MIT has developed it, and there are amazing resources online. I mean, one of the things that people just sort of freak out about is that programming is just something, you know, I can't possibly do. But Scratch is easy to learn and easy to teach, too. And there are amazing teaching resources on the, on the Scratch Educator website, videos, downloadable things you can, like somebody mentioned the cards, things you can have the kids cut up, and little activities, and just, you know, it's one of these things that you can't let teachers wait until they feel comfortable to do something. You, they have to be given permission to jump into something where they're not comfortable. And that's a big, big change in kind of professional development as, as we know it. Sylvia, we have a question. It's from mm -hmm. Deb. And she's asking, what do you see as steps teachers can take at the grassroots level? So I'm assuming that means if your school is not actually implementing a program for student involvement in this way, are there things that a, that a teacher can do? Well, I, you know, I, I think you, you do what you have control of. If you're a teacher in the classroom, you know, think about are there, are there things that you're trying to do with technology where, where you may be the unintentional roadblock? And can you hand some of that responsibility over to kids? You know, um, why not let them have a discussion of which tool is the appropriate one for the job. The conversation around choosing the tool is just as important as using the tool. You know, one of the ISTE-NET standards is choosing the appropriate tool. Um, you know, if you're a teacher in teacher professional development, you know, our GNS programs are, can be, you know, clubs, classes, they're, they're very different school to school. But I, you know, like I had, a, I featured on my blog a, a week or so ago, someone from, um, Australia who had what they called Catch a Teacher Day. So they had a committee of students and teachers who were into technology and they decided to have sort of a, a, a fair day, you know, a, a tech fair where they would ask the teachers to come in. But what the teachers did instead was the teachers would bring groups of kids, leave the kids and, and go away. 
And so the kids, the students who were on this committee decided they would call it Catch a Teacher Day and they would try and catch the teachers as they were leaving the room and convince them to stay and learn this technology. So, you know, that wasn't hard. It didn't take a lot of time. Um, but it gave the kids responsibility and over ownership over this. They saw the issue of the teachers trying to leave and just leave the kids, you know, to learn themselves. Um, you know, that's a simple thing you can do. Um, you can set up a student tech crew. You can do, you know, have a, have kids do community service. Um, we've, you know, some of we. I had one teacher tell me that he got a box of of computer carts delivered right before. Um, uh, the winter break and his kids said, well, can they help? So the kids came in on winter break and helped him build these, you know, roll around carts and put old refurbished computers on them that had like projectors and the sound, you know, sound, they tested the sound cables and made them little projector stations, little, you know, um, movable pro projector stations and then those kids were allowed to go to the principal's office and check them out. You know, really simple. And the kids did extra stuff. The kids named them. They decorated the cards. You know, sometimes giving kids ownership of things is really that simple. I think we've talked before also about um, having the students do a form of teaching to the parents or other members of the community around schools. Are you seeing examples of that? Some schools do it formally. You know, some schools actually have workshops where you know it's it's Photoshop night, it's download your email night, it's you know, and and the kids actually prepare workshops for anyone in the community who wants to come into the school. Um, some of this is more informal. You know, what do we want our kids to say when they go home? After you know, say a couple years after the parents have voted for the technology bond. And the kid comes home and the, and the parent says, you know, what would you do in school today? And, you know, the kid never mentions technology or says, oh, yeah, we bought, you know, the laptops they brought are stupid and they never work and none of the teachers use them. Well, how does the parent feel? You know, they got duped into thinking that their money was going to this high-tech 21st century learning. Um, you know, instead, wouldn't it be better to share with the kids what your vision of education technology is. So when they go home, they can talk to their parents about what kind of technology they're using. Um, you know, the parents can see that that my student is involved with teaching teachers technology or doing tech support or, you know, um, something that they can be proud of that, they, that the parents can understand. I think this messaging is really important. I, I think a lot of times we don't think about what message is going home and it's mostly going home through the kids. Interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm going back to your statement about sort of the inevitability of the handheld device and, and almost the degree to which like the calculator we can we, we can say it will come into the classroom. It's such a powerful learning tool um, and, and, and maybe that also sort of overcomes the traditional barriers to the use of computers. If you're looking at schools that are doing the one-to-one. -one. For those schools that aren't doing one-to-one, -one, have you seen creative uses of uh, computers in situations where they have very little funds to purchase the computers? Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you don't need, there's, there's no like shopping list of, oh, this is the perfect setup, you know, and I think sometimes people do get sort of wrapped up in waiting for the next iteration, you know, if I just had enough bandwidth, if I just had the right computer, if I just had, you know, and I, I remember somebody just put in the, in the um, chat, you know, we were working Claris Works and LC2s, it was like, if we just had color, if we just had a laser printer, you know, I mean, there's, you'll never get there. Um, I've, we've got schools where the technology is upgraded because the kids did something with the existing technology. So, you know, we ask teachers to do, to do their lessons to, to use the existing technology. We'll teach the kids to use that technology, to have them teach the teachers. If people see that you're using what you have, then they'll be more willing to, to give you more. You know, if they're seeing the kids lead and, and you know, 
come home and say, I'm in charge of the computer lab and I'm rewiring the building, you know, and I'm setting up the wireless network, that's something that the parents can understand. And that results in more community support of more technology. So I definitely don't think it's it's a we have to wait for the right technology kind of kind of thing. I also wanted to go back to your comment about the community of practice in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing the teachers who do that, um, are there sort of natural steps to expanding that beyond technology? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I, I think one of, the, one of the secrets is that technology enables a more open-ended student-centered approach you know, a, a pedagogy, and a lot of times when you try and teach technology without teaching new approaches to, to pedagogy, that teachers can't bridge that divide. They can't just do the same old things in new ways. It just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, there's, there's so many things that can change, and it becomes apparent, and I think a lot of people here kind of caught that spark. You know, it, a lot of teachers tell me that, that they haven't felt this enthused since they were in grad school or they were new teachers, that technology really makes them feel like, um, you know, this is the reason they got into teaching because it, it, it empowers students, it excites students, it, it makes everything possible. But you have, you know, you can't just be a lecturer and really make use of technology. So I think those, those things go hand in hand. So if you have a question for Sylvia, please feel free to put it in the chat or use the icon with the hand and the green up arrow, the larger icon at the bottom of the participant window to raise your hand. Um, Can I answer the Ohio question, Ed Jones? Please. Ohio question, do you give credit for extra activities? What about other states? Um, there's a lot of interesting things happening in states. One is that community service credit is becoming more common that, that, and that's law in a number of states. So, you know, Kids can do tech support as community service just as, just as well as picking up trash or cleaning up the beach or whatever. Um, new Hampshire has a new law that has, it's something like mandatory electives or mandatory choice or it's some weird juxtaposition of things. I don't know if anyone's here from New Hampshire, but you know, they're really opening up the, the idea that you know, everyone taking the same cookie cutter schedule is just not working. Um, so I think there's a lot of states that are kind of bucking the trend and trying to get away from this one-size-fits-all um, you know, set of courses that would allow for community service for internships um, you know, for school and for schools who want to do those kinds of things. Like the big picture schools is a you know, group of schools that focuses very heavily on, on internships. Uh, now, they're not like a high-tech high or, you know, they don't focus on technology, but it turns out that a lot of stuff they do is very high-tech because that's the real world. Sylvia, are there uh, voices that you follow that um, you'd want to shout, give a shout-out for or people maybe that our audience wouldn't know that you feel are saying things of importance? Oh, gosh. <laughs> There's, I think you had the list up and you're interviewing them all. Um, that's an amazing list you've got there. There are, um, you know, people who are doing things at all levels. So I, I follow classroom teachers. Some of you are here too. That you know, I get excited about reading what you're doing in your classroom. And there are people, um, you know, who are, who are more well known, like Deborah Meyer and Diane Revich, who I, I follow. I think their blog is fabulous. I, I can't imagine a better example of public discourse than what Deborah Meyer and Diane Ravitch are doing in writing, in public, um, every day, you know, important issues, respectful language. It, it's an amazing, it, it, they're an amazing pair. Um, you know, Karen Egan, who's on your list, is a probably, I don't know if everyone knows him, but a really, really interesting guy. Um, I, 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 he completely opened my mind about the power of narrative, um, not just in language arts or, or history, but in, in every subject. And he has some really, really unique views. You know, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm really looking forward to that interview. Um, it's in December 7th. 
Um, and if you can pick up some of his books, it's it's really really interesting what uh, the things that he talks about. Um, Roger Shank, um, he's he's one of a kind. Um, seriously, you have to listen to this guy. I think he he's incredibly brilliant. He's been talking about simulations and and alternative kinds of curriculum for years. Um, he's tried to start schools. He's done all sorts of interesting things where, you know, the curriculum is essentially two or three sentences, and the entire year's learning comes off of those big ideas, um, you know, and really, really good stuff. So I, I think you've got an amazing list here, Steve. I'm laughing because the only way I, reason I came across Karen Megan was he wrote a book called The Future of Education. And somehow that popped up for me, and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> how did I not know about him? Mm -hmm. So we did an exercise the other night when we were doing our Elevating the Dialogue show, and we asked our guests if they were writing an education manifesto or education declaration, what would be at the top of that list? What would be at the top of your list? Um. Oh gosh, I, if I was clever, I'd make this alliterative or something. But um, local control, well, you know, school, local, local community school control. Have you seen local communities do that well? And is there a, a good model? Is, has somebody developed, or is, are people documenting good models for that kind of community involvement? Um, I, I think they are. They just don't get a lot of publicity. You know, I think I think the publicity machine that's that's grinding out in the you know in the press today in the movies and and on TV is is just massive. And you know, I, I, the other day NBC Nightly News called us. You know, called me on the phone. It's like you're kidding, really? You know, it's like getting a call from the president or something. You know, and they they said, well, maybe we'll do a piece on one of your schools, and I gave them some, you know, principals' names, and uh, you know, it, let's say they do one amazing story that lasts for two minutes on the news for one night, and then that story goes away, and everyone goes, yay, that was great, you know, but then it's gone, and there are stories like that all over the country, and very few of them rise to even get like two minutes on a on a national news show, um, and and I don't know how to change that imbalance. I don't know how to, you know, figure out how to elevate these stories other than us telling them over and over and over again, and not not just telling them, but telling people what's remarkable about them. Um, sometimes we tell our stories in a way that seems obvious to us that this is remarkable and amazing, but to other people it looks just sort of like. Well, the kids are playing around, or yeah, the kids had a good time that day. But I, I think we need to to really always think of the audience who's who's, you know, outside our circle of influence. You know, um, creating like Lucy said, you know, success stories that that a parent would understand, your next door neighbor would understand. Because when I talk to parents and next door neighbors, they're not about test scores. You know, they don't care about AYP. They they tell me things like ah, I never learned in school all the tests and stupid things I only learn by hands on and it's like okay well <laughs> let's get that spirit together the it, it's very confusing the the times and the different you know attitudes toward school that that this country has so if something of a so selfish story. well agreed so something of a selfish motive asking the question because I got off a call this afternoon with Edutopia and, and Redo, and the idea was could we create a series of local events that somehow helped people in a community uh, begin that discussion about what they, how, to, how to build that education for their community. And I, and I interviewed Tony Wagner from Harvard, and I know he did this where he would go to a community and they'd gather to the constituents together and they'd sort of build their community education plan from scratch. But I'm wondering if there's anybody who's actually sort of, I can't find it, I haven't been able to find a documentation, sort of the steps that they took to actually do that. You know, who did they bring together? How did they schedule their days? Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I'm sort of looking for. I don't know anything specific. I mean, I've heard of like community events where communities get together, like future search kinds of 
things you, you exactly. think you Exactly, like a future. Yeah. I love the future search model. Yeah. Well, I don't. You know Bernadine Porter, right? Not well. I do not know her well. Well, she's a um, she's a certified future search organizer leader, and she's done that work with schools. But I, I don't think much recently. I think that sort of community, you know, mission has kind of gone away. I think people feel less connected to their schools, less connected to their um, to their community. You know, the, the local newspapers are going away, local radio and television shows are going away. Um, you know, it's it, it's much tougher to find to, to bring a community out around something. You know, but those kinds of models exist. Um, future search. If you if you Google future future search, um, it's a way for communities to come together and make long-term plans and action plans in a short period of time that are really well thought out and actionable. And there are people who are like trained as future search um, leaders. I think what I really like about future search is that, if I'm not mistaken, there's an exercise at the beginning that's really designed to help people not feel separated from each other. I think they write their stories up on the wall of mm -hmm. sort of their histories, and it's a way of kind of um, breaking away from um, uh, um, from from dialogue that's divisive and moving very much toward sort of um, a more community-oriented feel. I'm going to have to go look it up, but again, very interested. And if anybody else is, please feel free to email me. And uh, this is an effort that I think um, there may actually be some steam to. Okay, we've and only got also, a couple. And they also focus a lot of about getting people in the room. You know. Um, they won't start the meeting until everyone's there because we get a lot of that. You know, it's like, well, this committee is going to decide something, but they don't actually have any responsibility or, or power to do it. Um, I also want to give a shout out to uh, Thomas Lossig, who just came in. He was the teacher who uh, did the Catch a Teacher Day. So, Thomas, I was talking about you before. Um, and if you, if people look on my blog and search for Catch a Teacher Day, you'll find a whole write-up about about that uh, that event and what a great idea it was. Oh shucks, guys. <laughs> so David uh, has a question, and David, I gave you the microphone. I don't know if you looks like you lowered your hand, but if you'd like to take the mic, you can. If anybody else has a question, we probably have time for one question left for Sylvia. Sylvia, any sort of final thoughts? Um, no, I just really appreciate so many people coming out. Um, I'm happy to, to talk to people about, um, you know, Gen Yes or, or student technology leaders, um, project-based technology literacy. I mean, we, we do a lot of things that I never, that I didn't even talk about. But, you know, these issues are really important, and I think. You know, we have to get together. I know people say we're always preaching to the choir, but you know, the choir is the heart of the of the church. You know, <laughs> if we don't support each other and and tell each other we're doing a good job, it's all going to go away. So I, I think we need a lot of encouragement these days. We can you know do amazing things, share those successes out, um, talk to new teachers, bring people into the fold, and explain how important this all is. So. Really thank you guys all for coming out and uh, talk to you all around. Oh, well, hang on, because David has turned his mic on. David, did you want to ask a quick question? Thanks, Steve. Um, hi, Sylvia. Um, I posted in the chat, and I'll do it again. Um, there's this interesting art exhibit that apparently is going to start next year with a specially designed truck, and it will spend five weeks in eight different areas in a center city in an outlying area a military base and it just struck me that some of what we were talking about I mean the education tour would be something interesting to try to do um, taking in a lot of the ideas that were mentioned in the last 15 minutes thanks, thanks. David yeah I made it I made a note of that appreciate your comment and you're you're bringing that up, okay? So I'm Sylvia. I'm going to clap for you. It's really delightful to spend time with you as always. Uh, thanks for coming on, for bringing your unique perspective. You've said some things that I will not soon forget, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks to Illuminate Blackboard now. 
thanks to Bing, Microsoft's redo program for some support this month. Coming up uh, tomorrow, Roger Shank, and then on Thursday, Kathleen Cushman. So hopefully there's something on that list that uh, is worthwhile. We really appreciate your attending tonight. And again, Sylvia, thank you so much. Well, thank you, and thank you to everyone who, who showed up. Really appreciate it. You guys are great. The Sylvia Martinez Fan Club is now <laughs> <laughs> dismissed. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Steve, you're great. You're a great interviewer. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's so much fun to talk to you. Thank you. That was really fun. Okay, so we'll go ahead and uh, finish up there. We won't stick around tonight because I am uh, down at the EDUCAUSE conference, but we'll turn the recording off, and then we do need you to leave the room so the recording can process, and that will go up later tonight. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. <laughs>